this project also kind of fits hand in hand with these other projects. So talking to my, my coworker that's working with the giant sea stars, the Pycnopodia, the whole reason that they're trying to save the Pycnopodia, besides them having intrinsic value on their own, because they're really, really cool, but they're also a huge predator of the urchins that are killing all the kelp. So like those two things go hand in hand. And if there's no kelp, then there's not going to be any urchins eventually. You know, those two things go hand in hand. So if you want to save the sea stars, you also have to have kelp. And if you want to save the kelp, we need the sea stars. This episode is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Tidal Influence, a Californian ecological consulting firm who proudly supports environmental education and all of the diverse conservation efforts that Pelicanus works to highlight. Visit their website at tidalinfluence.com to learn more about what they do to conserve our coastal resources and how you can get involved. This podcast is sponsored by Project Dragonfly, a master's degree program offered by Miami University dedicated to ecological and social change. Project Dragonfly offers a part-time Master's of Arts in Biology degree focused on conservation or a Master's of Arts in Teaching for teachers. The program is designed for working professionals and can be completed from anywhere in the United States. Learn more at projectdragonfly.miamioh.edu. On this episode of Conservation Conversations, we talked to J.J. Sosky of the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach, California, about their programs to conserve kelp in California. JJ shares so many stories of working on keeping these crucial species around on the California coastline and much, much more. So enjoy our conversation with JJ. JJ, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Please introduce yourself and tell us uh, who you are and what you do with the aquarium. Sure. My name is JJ Sosky. I am a senior biologist in the Northern Gallery. So that deals with cold water animals found along our central coast up through Alaska. Um, And we border a little bit into Japan as well with our spider crabs. Um, So cold water, I work with a lot of really interesting invertebrates, specifically, I really love my basket stars, sea pens, and I sort of specialize at the aquarium in growing macroalgae. So larger um, seaweeds that are for display. Um, and I've dabbled in a lot of other things over the course of my time at the aquarium. I've been here verging on 10 years. So I've done a little bit of everything. Um, can you talk a little bit about your macro algae project? I know you, you have a a long or a a kind of a, a growing program on how to, or I pun intended, I guess, growing program, how to grow algae. So please talk about that program. Sure. So the main the main part of the project is um, basically very similar to a seed bank, or I've seen AZA refer to it as a bio bank, which I really like, um, especially because we're not keeping actual seeds, um, but we're keeping genetic tissue of bull kelp, which is one of the forest building species found in the more northern edge of the range I work with. Um, It's a forest building species up there. Within the last couple of decades, it's really taken a big hit, mostly due to global warming. Um, So what we're doing is preserving that tissue in the hopes that in the future, we could potentially outplant kelp and try and restore some of those sites. But for now, the important thing is gathering the samples, gathering the genetic material, and then 
finding out how to keep it in stasis and then doing that. So they think the partners we're working with have suggested that we can keep them for up to 10 years in stasis, which is really exciting. That's I think that's something that most people wouldn't expect. So explain that a little bit. So you can keep the kelp up to 10 years in stasis. Does that mean like little Jurassic Park vials that you're talking about? Yeah. So I'm sure you can drop in some footage of all of the little test tubes that I'm working with. Um, so because kelp has an alternate lifestyle, alternate life cycle, um, it's real weird. Uh, instead of being a flowering plant that then produces seeds that then turn into an identical plant, um, it releases spores, which then settle, and those spores develop in either into either a male or a female gametophyte, which is just a word for basically a, a clump of cells that's reproductive tissue. And those are actually, I mean, you would call them adults. They, they stay teeny tiny on the ocean floor. Um, but those are the, the organisms that are producing eggs and sperm and then uh, getting together and producing the large uh, kelp plant individual once they come together. But a kelp can only produce spores and spores only produce gametophytes. And then you need the gametophytes to produce a plant. So it's got this extra step in the middle. Um, but that can actually be really advantageous too, because like I said, I'm keeping them in stasis. They also kind of do that in the wild where they'll hunker down. And if, if the season isn't right, they could stay on the seafloor for, you know, possibly a couple of years. So an area that you might think has been deforested could potentially see blooms of kelp that were there that you didn't know were there. Um, so we're basically taking those small gametophytes, putting them in a test tube. And then um, the goal is actually not to grow them in that situation. So we're keeping them in um, an environmental chamber, AKA my wine cooler. Um, so I have wine coolers set up. Um, they just hold the perfect temperature. It's a little warmer than a refrigerator. So it's holding between like 48 and 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and then very low red light basically to prevent them from growing vegetatively because it'll turn into like big clumps of tissue like you can't actually reproduce it in that that form um but we just want to have one little pom-pom in each test tube and then they get a water change every six months and it's kind of hands off other than that just low light cold conditions and try not to disturb them too much it's funny because you have kind of the opposite job of what everyone else we've talked to, where they're trying to reproduce and grow and make more of everything. And you're like, just, just stop growing, please. Right. Just stay right there. <laughs> right there, just in case. Yeah. Um, okay. So just for a little bit of a programmatic context, um, so you're just to kind of take a step back, you said you have some partners in this kelp project, um, but you're, I guess... Sorry, dumb question, but why are you doing that? <laughs> why is why does the program exist? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like why why are you um why are we collecting all the kelp and why are we trying to keep it in stasis and and what's the overall goal of the project? Sure. So, I mean, they've got people on the project that are um all sorts of scientists. They've got geneticists. I think the guy at USC uh, works mostly in genetics. Um, so you've got people that 
We'll be working on potentially selective breeding. We could be using these samples to figure out which ones do better in warmer water, or maybe we're from the more southern range that might do better in warmer water. Um, so you've got people that could be working on selective breeding. Um, but the idea is really in the future, if we need to outplant, we need to have the material available for that outplanting. So that's sort of where the project, it, it's at the very beginning stage right now is just collect the materials so you have it to work with in the future. That's awesome. Cause you know, when you do hear the random positive environmental story in the news, uh, you know, sea turtles or sea turtles or something like that, you know, you kind of go, Oh, sea turtles are coming back in the Southeast. Great. What you don't know is 40, 50 years ago, somebody like you or the pro whoever's in the program put all that effort into figuring out, okay, what's the problem and what do we do about it? And then, all right, let's start doing it. And so the fact that you guys are doing that to think to, to, you know, preempt or even try to slowly figure out what's going on with the kelp beds on the West coast is that's so crucial. It, it feels <laughs> like it's just like, Oh, you just kind of have little things in test tube, but it's like, that's the building blocks for right. these conservation programs. And that's so cool. Yeah. And in an ideal world, my dream would be that in 10, 15, 20 years, we don't need it. Like that would be fantastic. I don't think that's going to be the case. I have a feeling we are going to be working with these samples in the future. Um, unless we really get our act together and I don't know, it's just, it's good to hold on to these things for the future too. Cause I mean, kelp is also goes through a lot of like boom and bust cycles that are pretty normal. Um, you know, we all hear about El Nino, La Nina, those, those weather patterns have always existed. So you're always going to have warm weather, warm years or colder years. The kelp is going to do better in a colder year than a warmer year. Um, so you can correlate those, those cycles with, you know, this year we had tons of kelp and then the next year it won't be a great year, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to come back the, the following year. Um, that's important too, to remember just because we see it start to do it, start to do better in the wild doesn't mean that, you know, I'm going to throw these samples away because you never know what's going to happen in five years from now. I want to take a little bit of a step back to talk about the bull kelp then, um, a little bit about where it lives, what it needs, just a little bit more of the biology or the ecology of that species. Sure. Um, so like I was saying before, it's a forest building species. So it's really important habitat to almost everything that lives in and around it. It's, it's critical habitat for lots and lots of animals. Um, it's exists, you know, down into Monterey and then up through Alaska, probably a little you know, some air on either side, a little further south than that, a little further north than that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it can grow incredibly tall, like over 60 feet tall. Um, it's it's a weird one. It's it's looks like mostly stipe. So it's like a big, long um, bull whip. That's why it's bull kelp, because it looks like a bull whip. It's a long whip of a stipe and then it's got one float on the top like a buoy and then all those long blades come off of that so it shades the floor a little bit um it'll drop blades which is really important to a lot of the animals that you know the the echinoderms that are going to be chomping on um algae 
and subsisting on that. But unfortunately, that means if they if they get the base of it, they can dislodge the whole thing and then it's just gone. You you mentioned floats, and that reminds me. I feel like I remember learning that the floats in giant maybe it was maybe not bull kelp, but it's one of the only natural occurrences of carbon monoxide. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, they have I heard some random um I feel like there's one random quote floating around there that it's got enough carbon monoxide in it to kill a chicken. And you're like, why? Why? Why is that how you want to express that? Like, couldn't we just quantify exactly how much carbon monoxide is there? Or no, I don't know why we had to bring chickens into it. They didn't do anything to kelp. And so, okay, so you mentioned that they're they're forest building species. And my first image is just like, kelp forest and how cool that is. But then when you actually think about the importance of that is you think of all the fish, shark species, invertebrates, everything that goes into it. Cause like if you're ever at the beach and you have like a, a kelp hold fast that washes up, if you open up that hold fast, there's thousands and thousands of little organisms in there, if not hundreds of different species. So the ecological importance of this species is huge. Yeah, I think um, my mom is a naturalist that's really obsessed with trees and birds and forests in general. And it really is such a good analogy to compare it to trees because it just it fulfills almost every role you can think of in a food web or in an ecological setting because it's going to be food for certain animals. It's going to be housing for certain animals. Lots of animals lay their eggs on it or live directly on it. You know, you've got um, sessile invertebrates that are living on the blades of the kelp. And then it also, you know, it acts to mitigate wave action. So it can slow waves down as they come into shore. Um, lots of animals live in, in the, the base of it too, in the holdfast, just like you said, animals lay their eggs in the holdfast, just like we were talking about. Um, and then it's also a carbon sink. So when those blades rip off and then get swept out to sea and then eventually sink to the bottom of the ocean, you know, lots of people are really focusing on the idea of using it as a carbon sink right now, too. So just and it creates oxygen. I I tend to um, I bristle a little bit every time you hear people say like, oh, kelp is the lungs of the ocean. You're like, no, little tiny micro algaes are the lungs of the ocean. But it does it does produce oxygen as well. So it is it is important for that. It's just don't downplay the microalgae. Those are really important, too such an interesting species, you know, like I grew up in Southern, we grew up in Southern California, but you go to the beach and you're just like, oh, there's some kelp, whatever, you know, but then the more you learn about it, the fact that like, it's such a, such a cool species. It's not even the most complicated either. Like, please don't even ask me about some of the other more complicated seaweeds that have like males and females instead of animals that are individuals that just release spores. That gets even more confusing in thinking about conservation or in, in any environmental work really is p different people have different motivations right and one of the big motivations for folks that aren't in the field is how does it benefit humans and you know there's the big scale stuff uh, you know, global warming, uh, we, we need to reforest, uh, or stop deforestation for the sake of global warming. Um, 
we need to work on fisheries so that we don't have fisheries collapse, those kinds of things. Um, but I know a lot of us that are in the field, you know, we might have, we might harbor our own internal emotions like, well, I just do it because I want to see more of it. Um, and so I'm curious about your motivations in working with kelp and working with kelp forests. And then also in that, do you mind speaking to is kelp used? Is bull kelp or any of the algaes? Because I know like, what is it, carrageenan um, is used in a lot of uh, products and just want to try to see from your perspective uh, how kelp affects us in our day-to-day lives. Sure. So again, I think it's, it's very similar to looking at a forest. You know, there are those of us who are just going to see the intrinsic value of like, this is a beautiful habitat and we should preserve it as it is because it is just inherently beautiful and special and you don't need to go into it any more than that. Um, I think it you are going to have to appeal to people on their level of what other people are interested in. Like you're not necessarily going to convince somebody to have the same feelings about something that you have, especially for kelp or things in the ocean, you know, a vast majority of people are never going to go out diving and see that firsthand and feel what it feels like to be in that situation or like see a whale close by um, to really get that emotional connection So I think that there is a lot of value. It, you know, borders on manipulation, but I think there is a lot of value to trying to figure out how to convince other people that it has worth just where they're going to find worth from it. So similar, like I turn the lights off and conserve energy because I think it's a good thing to do. And I know that electricity comes from burning coal where I grew up and they're still doing that. So there's great reasons to turn off you know, your lights to save the forest. But if you're talking to somebody's dad, turn off the lights because it saves energy. We're, we still win. If you can convince people that they, they're going to benefit from, from saving those, uh, those kelps, then yeah, you're going to find a benefit. So going into that, there is commercial value in kelp. Um, kelp has been harvested along this coast for a really long time. Um, We talk at the aquarium all the time about the uses of um, kelp as uh, the algae is used in products like ice cream to keep it from freezing really solid. It it gives your ice cream that soft texture, even when it's frozen. Um, It's used in toothpaste. I'm seeing tons more skincare than I used to using kelp products. I'm seeing a lot more of that recently. And then also bull kelp specifically is being harvested in Alaska for uh, human consumption. So you can get kelp pickles, you can get, and they make like a chili garlic crisp that's got kelp in it, um, kelp salsas. But other than that, I mean, yeah, it, it does produce oxygen. It does help mitigate wave action along the coast. If you like fishing, you might be interested in preserving kelp forests so that you actually have something to fish for. Um, so, so what is it that got you into marine biology? You kind of mentioned you, you grew up somewhere that's not coastal, if I remember. Yeah, I grew up in Ohio. Um, my dad was a Navy diver and growing up, I spent a lot of time swimming in pools and on the, I grew up right on the lakefront of Lake Erie. So I spent a ton of time on boats. Um, it wasn't as landlocked as you expect when you hear Ohio. I actually grew up right on the water. 
Um, so spent a ton of my childhood in and on the water snorkeling and, you know, which isn't something you generally think of doing in a lake, but I spent a lot of time snorkeling, looking at bluegill and bass and finding where they were hiding out. Um, you remember doing school projects of collecting lake water to look under a microscope. So I've always been super interested in seeing what was under the water's surface. And I can just remember being in high school and opening a book about shells and seeing a picture of a Nautilus and it just like kind of blowing my mind, like, what is that? That's so weird. That's so crazy. It hadn't even occurred to me that something could be that unique. And it just kind of like sparked that interest of wanting to learn more about what I don't know, like understanding that that's, that we've just scratched the surface. So I think just getting really interested in those sorts of things. But I will say, I thought I was going to be working with freshwater fish more than I am now. How did you end up uh, with the aquarium then? Uh, I always kind of knew that I wanted to work for, for an aquarium. You know, we I went to aquariums as a kid with my parents and zoos. Um, and especially after working in college with a lab where I was keeping zebrafish, I realized very quickly that I have a short attention span. Um, and I don't want to work with the same animal for the rest of my life and only look at one fish forever. It gets kind of dull. Uh, so I knew that I wanted to work for aquariums. So early in my college career, I was getting internships at aquariums and right out of college, I did some environmental work in freshwater science, but was working that whole time to get positions in aquariums. Talking about your, your program programs, I should say, and all of the other people we've talked to at, at the Aquarium of the Pacific that are part of a much larger communities, different communities for each pro project all come together in this larger conservation effort. And one of the things we, we highlight, obviously, is the fact that these organizations are doing this. And, you know, not we don't like to, you know, skirt over all the bad things happening. It's like, that's the basis of why we're doing this is to then show, Hey, here's all these people doing all this work to try to, you know, reverse that. Um, and so to me, that has to feel really good to be a part of a larger thing. It has to be optimistic. So can you please talk about that, that feeling of being part of a larger group and, you know, does that motivate you day to day? Or is that just kind of like your head down, just flushing water between kelp uh, vials or, how does that work? No, it is very motivational. I mean, a lot of us, um, all of us are obviously very passionate about, you know, the environments that we're trying to represent. I got into this field because I was really interested in sparking that same interest in other people. So what I, I got into this to do is display animals in a way that was as natural and educational as possible to try and spark that interest in the public that can't go out diving and see it. Um, and then from, from there, obviously it's great to get to work on all of these research and conservation projects. Um, it does, it makes you feel like you're doing even more because I mean, that's, the educational aspect is really important as far as aquariums go, but I'm loving getting to do more and more of the conservation work. That was one of the reasons I was really 
um, passionate about moving to the coast, working in aquariums that were more landlocked, it's, it's a lot more display focused and you don't get to go do these side projects as much. So like the abalone monitoring that we do and all of the open ocean diving, that's some of the stuff that I really, really enjoy doing. Um, and I think one of the other things I really love about it is I'm a small part of this project, but this project also kind of fits hand in hand with these other projects. So talking to my, my coworker that's working with the giant sea stars, the Pycnopodia, the whole reason that they're trying to save the Pycnopodia, besides them having intrinsic value on their own, because they're really, really cool, but they're also a huge predator of the urchins that are killing all the kelp. So like those two things go hand in hand. And if there's no kelp, then there's not gonna be any urchins eventually you know, those two things go hand in hand. So if you want to save the sea stars, you also have to have kelp. And if you want to save the kelp, we need the sea stars. And then you can draw in the abalone. Like I'm, I'm loving having this team of my friends and colleagues that are working on very different projects, but they all fit together in saving the same sort of habitat. And that's, you know, specifically our, our cold water coast. You, you're going to hear the same things from people who are doing coral research. You know, you're going to have your, your coral people that are depending on people growing baby urchins so that they can co-culture things together. But I love that collaboration. It's like you're, you're part of a small project, but your small project is also part of bigger projects. So lots of working with each other and as large of a, a field as it is it's also very small too because you'll meet people and go oh yeah i met that person at this other dive and they're working on this with this other person so you'll see them at this conference just i don't know that's really fun that's fantastic jj thank you so much uh we're I, we could ask a thousand more questions over the next three hours about all about kelp and everything else you do but we love to we love to learn about your program and how it all fits into this larger conservation movement that the aquarium is doing. So, thank you so much. That was that was amazing. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you to JJ for talking all about what AOP is doing to help kelp on the California coastline, and so much more. Please either visit AOP when you're in town or consider donating to help them recover local wildlife and habitats. Visit them at www.aquariumofpacific.org to see how you can help. Hosts and producers are Austin and Taylor Parker. Producer is Madeline Walden. Music was provided by Picture Book Studios. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe if you want to help. Thanks again. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>